Welcome back to Comic Book Historians. I'm Alex Grand, and I'd like to start off this episode with a hearty congratulations to my dear friend Bud Plant for his nomination to the Eisner Hall of Fame. You can vote for Bud. The instructions are shown at the bottom of this podcast description. Cheers. Well, welcome back to Comic Book Historians. I'm Alex Strand. Today we have a very special guest, Mr. Bud Plant. Bud Plant was owner of one of the, if not the largest, comic book store franchise uh, in the United States at one time. He was also distributor of comics for a large geographic region of the United States at one point, and also is a comic art and book dealer of Bud's Art Books, and that's been going on for decades. He is actually also very well read, a comic book historian, and a historian of many things, including pulps, books, and uh, all sorts of paraphernalia. He has an incredible library. Uh, Bud, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Alex. That was, that was a good intro. I can't think of any flaws in that one, so uh, <laughs> we can move on. <laughs> exactly. Basically, Bud and I have been friends for a few years now. We met through a mutual friend, someone who used to work at Comics and Comics, which Bud co-founded in the early 70s. Nicely enough, we've hung out every few months for a few years and had a lot of fun discussions, looked at a lot of old comics, so we're very familiar with each other. Um, but if you could let the audience know, you were born in 1952 in San Jose. What did your parents do? Um, my dad was like a kind of a maintenance um, engineer, you know, sort of no with no degree behind him. But he worked at a big company that had about 500 employees. They manufactured electronic um, equipment. And he was the, the go-to guy for keeping things maintained and running. And my mom was a registered nurse. Mm-hmm. And then they actually, the, the interesting story about them, the most interesting part, I think, is that they met um, on a troop ship um, going to North Africa in World War II in 1942. And they were both first lieutenants. Um, my mom was in the nurse corps and my dad was in the um, signal corps. Mm-hmm. Signal corps was going to North Africa to, um, to establish radio stations in preparation for the invasion of Europe, um, which was going to come up and go up through Italy, um, starting in North Africa. Anyway, they met. We met on a troop ship and got married in Cairo, Egypt in 1943. So, <laughs> so I'm a war baby, I guess. Now, did that Cairo origin, did that kind of give you an international perspective just from the beginning uh, of having more of a global look at the world? Whether or not it's influenced by that, I think uh, I've always had a fascination with World War II. And I think a lot of us in the, the comic world have that because comics sort of came into their own in World War II. You know, we all look back on that. And so, boy, that was a different time and everybody was pulling together. And yeah, here's my parents. Is, they were actively part of that uh, right through the war. Your dad read some comics too, some comic strips. Is that right? I wouldn't say he was a comic fan. I couldn't ever identify any particular comics that he read, but um, he definitely read the funny pages when I was a kid, ever since I can remember. And um, and he'd buy an occasional collection of comic strips back in the late 50s, early 60s. You know, there was Peanuts and there was um, Pogo and Blondie, strips like that. Barnaby, I think, would get collected into little paperbacks and stuff. And somehow my dad would end up with them, those every once in a while. So we had a few of those kicking around the house. And then, of course, the big thing for me was they got a subscription of Walt Disney's Comics and Stories for the family. I have two older sisters, four years older and six years older. And so, um, you know, our big event was, was haunting the mailbox every month and getting a, an issue of Walt Disney's comics and stories. The one comic 
that my parents subscribed to. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so they subscribed to that for you to read it, basically. For right? us to, yeah, I think. And my, my dad certainly read it. I don't think my mom cared. My mom was never really into she had better things to do, like cook dinner, you know, <laughs> take care of the house. <laughs> but yeah, the, my sisters and I used to fight over who got to read the, the latest issue first. Yeah. And so could you tell that there was a, a good duck artist at that point? I don't know if I could say say he was the good duck artist, but I know that I really enjoyed the the Donald Duck stories a lot more than the rest of the issues. I mean, they've they've always meant more to me. So even as a little kid, but I just know that the stories were a lot of fun. As I grew up, I kept reading Carl Bark stuff. I don't know quite how soon I got into Uncle Scrooge and all that, but I, I definitely enjoyed them. I mean, I, I remember those long, full-length stories to this day of the Scrooge and the kids going out on adventures. You know, those are just wonderful. My generation grew up on that DuckTales show, which is basically based on the comics that Barks did. For the most part. Um, oh, yeah. OK, sure. Which yeah. I've, I've never watched. <laughs> yeah. It's basically oh, wow. they're just kind of rehashing Carl Barks for most of that. Yeah. yeah. And in one episode, I think they actually credit him. And I was like, oh, wow. OK. <laughs> like, I, I noticed that later. When I first got into comics, there was already a coiterie, a group of people collecting um, Carl Barks stuff. But it was so plentiful back in, say, 1965, 1966, 67, that you could get just about any any of the comics except the super rare early ones. You could get them for a quarter a piece or 50 cents a piece. I mean, they were like you know, all over the place. But there was hardcore guys saying, yeah, I'm really into, into ducks. And so was I. I mean, me and my buddies all sort of collected those, but they weren't the sexy stuff like the, the ECs or the Frazetta books. But still, we all had our, our little modest Parks collection going back to, you know, the early 50s or something yeah. like that. You develop a taste for comics with with the Walt Disney comics. Then where did you start uh, looking to to get more comics from? Like, was there a local store um, that you in the late 50s that you were getting more comics from? Well, the the big event for me happened in 61. And there was a couple stores, a couple um, drug stores fairly close by to my house. I could walk or ride my bike to two of them. Probably in 61, I wasn't big enough to go to the the. Um, the big liquor store that was about three miles away. That was probably a little too much. So say the two local stores, I somehow got a batch of, of comics in late 61. And I remember every one of them super well, and I've recollected them and stuff. And they included Brave and the Bold 34 with Hawkman by Kubert, a copy of one of the strange adventures with a guy with a machine on his head on the cover. It's supposed to be a bomb that's going to go off if he doesn't solve the problem. Um, <laughs> Yeah, let's see. There was a like a Sergeant Rock. Um, I think that it was a nurse in the story. So that was like, oh, yeah, it's like my mom in the war, you know. But the big one was Fantastic Four One. Somehow oh, wow. I picked up Fantastic Four One at the same time. There was also Tales to Astonish 22. So I, I can really remember all these comics. And my my folks must have given me a dollar or something or a dollar and a half. And I went and bought all these 10 cent comics. I might have bought a, a few after that, but. I didn't get into collecting. I just, I have really strong memories of those comics. And then the next thing I really remember is um, I got hooked on um, Sergeant Rock and um, I even had a subscription to Sergeant Rock. And then all of a sudden, boom, I discovered Marvels. But this was not until, um, let's see, I bought FF18, but I didn't start collecting FF until about 31. It would have been the spring, I think, of 1964. And I would have been 12. And all of a sudden, boom, I somehow discovered them. I must have wandered by the 
the drugstore and picked up a like Spider-Man 13 would have been my first Spider-Man. Um, I must have picked up one or two of them and started reading them going, oh, shit, these things are great. And they're still only 12 cents. And so it was all imminently affordable at that point. So you could buy every Marvel comic for the month for what, 12 times what, eight or 10 titles. That's all they had right then. So for about 20, which is a lot of, you know, bottles you could pick up along the roadside and turn in for, for deposits, which was what a lot of kids did. Plus yard work and stuff. I could have every Marvel that came out. And that's when I got, you know, thoroughly hooked and became like a Marvel maniac. Marvel maniac. That's cool. Yeah. I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed to be getting Sergeant rock. I was reading all those Stanley soap boxes and go, Oh <laughs> shit. I've got a subscription to Sergeant rock and that's brand X. And that's, that's, you know, bad stuff. What was I thinking? <laughs> These are so much better than, than Sergeant rock is. Yeah. So, so yeah. there was like, you saw the Fantastic Four one in 61, but it wasn't until a few, a few years later to really jumped on that bandwagon did that first issue not really get your attention that much yet as a nine-year-old? I, I tell you, I got great memories of those comics, but I guess there was so many, there was other things going on in my world and going out and, and finding comics did not immediately come become a part of it. I mean, I was, I got into little baseball cards and, and um, you know, I was, I was, I don't know if I was collecting, was I collecting anything else? Yeah. Not necessarily. I mean, collecting didn't really run in my family. Though it's weird that I would have picked up FF18. So there was something going on that that yeah. one issue, because I found that FF18 when I when I um, started, like I say, the story of collecting comics starting in 64, I went back and said, wait a minute. I remember reading these and they look different. I remember the, the Fantastic Four looked different. And I searched the whole house and I found a copy of number 18, but I never found that number one. The number one was gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, there was a little bit of something going on there, but it was like a, just an occasional thing, like going to the movies or, you know, going to a swimming pool. I mean, it was just, you know, it hadn't really grabbed me and said, oh, you can now go out and buy these things for yourself. Yeah. And I think by 18, it was really well defined, the flavor that they were going for. I think that first issue is still somewhat amorphous. I think once you see the cool costumes and the fantastic car and all that stuff in full swing, um, I think that'll grab kids way more effectively probably you also got introduced to some golden age comics and that was by reading was that through the jules pfeiffer article in playboy because your dad had a yeah, collection exactly i'm not sure which came first the article or the book it huh? might have been the article yeah um, i might have somehow gotten my i used to you know steal the playboys out of my dad's bottom drawer classic you know classic story that he never showed them to me but i <laughs> quietly pull that drawer open when nobody was around and check out the playboys. And I, and I saw that, but I did get, I think my mom actually bought me a copy of the book because the book was four bucks or five bucks. It wasn't cheap. Um, But I think I got it for a Christmas present. And, um, and that was the, you know, that was a huge eye opener because up until that point, the only thing you knew about golden age was if Marvel mentioned something about it, you know, mentioned about Captain America being around since the forties or something, but the knowledge was, that thin but all of a sudden boom the pfeiffer book opens us all up and you go whoa who's who's this guy the spirit you know and look at that superman looks really different and batman looks really different and that was a big deal yeah that's that, that's interesting uh, because it's not like there was google to search for that stuff so it was that article or that book and then that like opens all these kids eyes to what went on 20 years ago that's that's huge that's um, right that's right yeah i mean you know dc was doing the 80 page giants and Trying to think if I bought any of the 80 page giants. 
I think I th- oh I think I bought a Batman. I think I bought one of the early Batmans, and that was sort of interesting because it was like these old Batman stories. Yeah, but of course they still didn't measure up. They didn't usually measure up to anything Marvel was doing at the time. But I do have sort of fond memories of that sort of weird nostalgic thing, looking at these old Batman stories. But you yeah, know. and that, and that Jack Schiff Batman uh, from the early '60s, before that new look happened. Uh, they weren't that. Yeah they're, yeah, they're they're horrible comics, but actually the, the eighty page giants they they did go back a little further and they they got some more decent stuff. I mean, the Batman in the fifties, early fifties, mid fifties, those were okay. I mean, Batman just went steadily downhill by, you know, by the late fifties, early sixties. They were just horrible. I mean, they were everything that that you you know, a comic fan at Marvel would say that is horrible stuff. You know, and Superman. I don't know. It wasn't much better. I've appreciate. I've learned to appreciate Superman a lot more from the Silver Age, and I, I like the whole Superman family thing. Weisinger was doing a nice job, um, but you know, by nineteen sixty four, sixty five, yeah, still Superman didn't measure up to Spider Man and Fantastic Four and stuff. Kurt Swan was doing okay stuff. I have to have to say that, but the stories had sort of pooped out. I, I like reading the Superman stories you know, all the way up to sometime in the late fifties, early sixties, they're still pretty good. You know, they're still, the whole family thing is sort of fun with Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane and all that. I collect, I got all the Lois Lanes. They're beautifully drawn by Kurt Schaffinger. Just don't read too many of them at one time. Cause yeah. you go, Whoa, <laughs> I think I've already heard this plot before. It's <laughs> Lois Lane wanting to get married to Superman again, but you know, <laughs> but they're okay. And they're cheap, too. You could collect all the lowest lanes for next to nothing. So by 1965, you're really into the Marvel vibe. You had then learned about how Captain America and Submariner had a Golden Age history with the Pfeiffer article. Right. And so then there was uh, what I had read about you was that there was what the uh, there's a story about a local like kind of bookstore dollar. They had dollar comics and you got introduced through other fans through that. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, that was, well, there was a store called Twice Red Bookstore in downtown San Jose, and they were the place you'd go to for used books. Um, and they'd have, they like like if I was looking for, um, like, little Lone Ranger books, the little hard hardcover Lone Ranger books and Gene Autry's or something like that, you could go there and find them. And I think as a kid, like Bomba the Jungle Boy, I was into Bomba the Jungle Boy, I was into Tarzan, and my sisters might take me down there because it was about six miles from my parents' house. So that's a long ways when you're, when you're a kid of 12. Um, but we go down there and scope out the place. Anyway, they had in the front of the store, real typical, they had um, a counter right next to the, the guy that ran the store, and it was it had a couple stacks of comic books there. They even had coverless comics that the guy would carefully put plastic around. He'd glue the plastic to the mm-hmm. back cover and put a little plastic cover on just to somehow preserve it make it look like it's worth more money or something but all the comics i think at the time were essentially um they probably were either nickel or a dime a piece for a used comic um so this would be say 1965 mid 1965 so new comics were 12 cents they probably were a nickel i don't think they were even 10 cents they probably were a nickel and at the flea market which i got into fairly around the same time any comic at the flea market was a nickel no matter what it was you know, unless somebody was like crazy, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, well, this order should should be worth a little bit more. But nickel was the going price for a used comic. So anyway, I go down there 
and I'm going through their comics and looking for whatever. You could sometimes get coverless Atlas. You know, you'd recognize you go, yeah, that sort of looks like an old Stan Lee comic somehow. It's a monster, <laughs> and stuff, you know, but it wasn't terribly old comics. You're talking about stuff from the mid fifties. That was only 10 years old at that point. Um, but anyway, some kid comes in and asks the, the proprietor to see the dollar comics. And this, you know, this is a memory of a memory at this point. So all I can say, you know, my memory of a memory is a, a big light bulb goes off above my head. And I go, what? dollar comics what is a dollar comic and the guy gets out a little stack of comics and shows them to him and the guy doesn't buy a buy a comic and i go can i look at the dollar comics you know in my little charlie brown you know attitude no yeah okay wow and i go through them i found it i found it thrills of tomorrow on uh, number 18 which reprinted stuntman you know oh yeah not the most spectacular book in the world, but it's friggin' Simon and Kirby. Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, Kirby, I certainly know who Kirby is. And I'm going, wow, this is old Jack Kirby doing this really wild stuff. And Stuntman was a good, a good strip. It was a great comic that never yeah, really went. Yeah, I, 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 like, I liked it a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, Anyway, so I buy this one comic. So I walk out the door and this kid goes, hey, are you into comics? <laughs> you know, <laughs> And um, I go, yeah, you know, I am. And so he goes, hey, well, I know all these guys that are into comics and you know, they're doing a little fanzine and they da, 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 da. And I go, well, cool. Well, so we'll have to get together. So I, we change, we exchange addresses or phone numbers or something. And eventually my mom takes me across town because this guy is way the hell and gone. Um, it's like 15, 18 miles across town, which again, when you're a kid, that's a long, long ways. Uh, but my mom took me over there and I met through him. I met John Barrett, who became my partner in comics and comics. Um, Jim Buser, who also became a, one of the partners and who I know to this day, unfortunately, John is, John is gone. He passed away. And I met all these guys. There was this other contingent of people in San Jose. And Michelle Nolan also, right? Who was yep, there? And absolutely. And Michelle Nolan. Michelle Nolan has a great story. What she did, she was going to the flea market looking for comics before she had met me. And I'm not sure if she had met John and Jim or not. Maybe, maybe not. Um, because we were living a little bit apart. She was partly up the peninsula. So she was a little more removed from us. Anyway, she goes to the flea market and she runs into some kid. And um, the kid says, hey, I know other people that have comics. Are you looking for comics? And this kid's just a hustler. He's just this young hustler. And he says, oh, for five bucks. I think it was five bucks. Might have been less. Might have been a couple bucks. For five bucks, I'll, I'll take you to this guy's house and introduce you to him. And so somehow she pays this kid money to somehow come over to my house and and because, you know, everybody's looking for old comics. Of course, we're all like trying to get out there and score the good stuff before somebody else does. So she ends up coming to my house. I remember very little detail about that whole that whole <laughs> shenanigans. But anyway, that's how I met Michelle, you know, was and I don't know. Did I sell her some comics? Who knows? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. a lot of that stuff I can document because I kept these rather loose, funky journals all the way through this period. So I do have about documentation on what I picked up at the flea market and you know when I first met Jim and Buser and those guys and you know that sort of thing now there was also the San Jose Mercury ads classifieds and and was it through there that uh you met Jim Bunker? is that right you could advertise in yeah the Mercury there was some kind of swapping swapper thing um I don't think I ever advertised there, through there but one or two of the other guys did it could be Michelle did you may know more about the story than I do at this point <laughs> I've forgotten the details um but there was somebody Vodabonker could have been advertising you know hey looking for old comics give me a call cuz boy those were the days cuz people didn't think comics were worth anything so 
you put a little ad in there and some and some kid goes, oh, yeah, I've got a stack of comics. Wow, maybe I can sell them. And boom, all of a sudden you've got a little comic collection put together. So the guys that the, the slightly older guys that had a car that could get somewhere and had a little tiny bit of money, you know, could go out and score stuff. I don't know how much of that really went on, but there was, that was another way people started getting together and meeting each other. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, did y'all make any fanzine of any kind together? Um, well, yes and no. When I first met John and Jim in 1965, in late 65, they were working on a magazine called Eccentric. I think it was Eccentric. Yeah, it was Eccentric. Um, and it was a ditto magazine. And John actually had a ditto machine in his garage that he was running. And Jim Buser, I know, was doing stencil artwork never Jim was never an artist but you know hey he was doing it and I think Michelle got involved well may, I could be wrong Michelle may not have gotten involved that quickly but anyway they were doing this fanzine they did a couple issues boom sort of end of that story but um when I got involved in you know once I got involved with fandom and discovered the, the big dig was the rockets blast the big deal was these guys go hey did you know that there's a comics fandom of course I don't. I never heard of any of that, that stuff. All this, they go, well, here, get this. You need to get this Rockets Blast. It's all full of comics for sale. And there's articles and there's other fanzines. And that opened up this blossoming giant world to me as a as a 12 year old. Um, and I contributed. I wrote an article on Mystery in Space for a magazine or for a, one of the fanzines. God, the publisher was Don Dagonaeus. I think it was called Comic Scene, you know, very forgettable, hard to go on Mystery in Space. But now this would have been, a, by this time, had to be a year or two later. So this has to be 66, 67. You know, I was I, I got turned on to, I got turned on back to DCs again by John and Jim and those guys, because they're going, oh, you only collect Marvels. Well, what about Adam Strange and the Atom and the Flash and Green Lantern? Those are good comics. Those aren't Superman and Batman. This is good stuff. And so I got all turned on to them and discovered Mystery in Space, which I love. The Julia Schwartz. The Julia Schwartz stuff. Yeah, all the Schwartz stuff. That was the best, the best DC stuff that was coming out. And do you remember uh, which issue of Rocket Blast Comic Collector that you first read? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was number 43. Yeah, everybody dates their beginning <laughs> getting into fandom with the rock. Back in those days, it was with what issue of Rocket Blast did you get? And mine was number 43. I know Jim Buser. Um He's my age, but he got into fandom much earlier. And I think his first issue was something like 20 something. I mean, he was really in early. Um, Jim, Jim's big claim to fame is that he um, sent a sent a letter and he was uh, one of these letter writers like I was. I got a few well, you know, I had a few pub published letters in the Marvels in 65, 66, something like that. Jim counted every panel that every member of the Justice League appeared in. 
in the first, whatever it was, 20 issues or 25 issues, <laughs> and sent this letter in and said, okay, you guys are not doing justice to so-and-so because he only appeared in this many panels, but here's the here's the panel countdown for Wonder Woman and Green Lantern. <laughs> and I think they made some, you know, some funny comment about it. Boy, you're a really dedicated fan there, buddy, you know. Yeah, tracking tracking them down. Um, we were looking at a page from Daredevil 16, um, but you had written letters to to Marvel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how many letters I sent them, but they published, I think I had maybe three or four letters published. No big deal. And I can barely, you know, I remember the Daredevil 16, of course, because that was one of the longer letters. I had read a letter to um, um, one of the, the cowboy comics, um, Kid Cold or, or Two Gun Kid. There might have been a letter in Sergeant Fury. But it was pretty cool because especially Daredevil 16, because that's Ramita doing uh, Daredevil. And I think that's like celebrated stuff before he really took off on Spider-Man. So that's pretty cool that you're in that issue. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And the big the big deal back then was also joining the Mary Marvel Marching Society, the MMMS. And they were publishing everybody's names in there. So my big deal was FF40. My name's the very bottom bud plant in San Jose, California. I got my name in, in a Fantastic Four, which was to me probably a much bigger deal than just getting a letter in some, you know, some stray issue of Kid Colt. You know? So you're also then looking for back issues, but they weren't called back issues back then. They were they were just older comics, I guess. Yeah. But how are you getting those? Were they from trading from friends? How was that working? Well, before the rockets blast, yeah, it would have just been friends. I mean, I was going to school and, you, you know, I, I had two or three buddies that collected comics, too. Um, and, you know, even as early as then or, or shortly thereafter, my buddies sometimes would give up collecting comics and move on. So all of a sudden I might buy a bunch of their comics from them. Didn't happen a lot, but it happened a little bit. Um, the big deal for me was, like I mentioned, the flea market. I was three miles away from one of the best flea markets on the West coast, the San Jose flea market was sort of, there was a, there was also a pretty good one in Oakland, but I never got up there, but San Jose flea market was a really good flea market. And um, I could ride my bike down to the flea market and take, you know, maybe four or five bucks. That's all I would have, you know, in my pocket and buy comics for nickel apiece. And so I started, you know, I discovered that's where I could get old comics more than more than at the, the old bookstore. They they didn't have a whole big selection of it, but you could get fresh, fresh fodder at the flea market. And so I'm I'm starting to collect comics in 64. Well, I can get comics from 63, 62 that are a year or two old that I didn't already have. Tales to Astonish with, you know, Giant Man and Ant-Man and um, um, Tales of Suspense and just whatever would come up. You know, um, I think I was I got into um, Magnus Robot Fighter and I found some back issues that there was a lot of comics floating out of the flea market. And of course, I'm being picky at a five cents. <laughs> you know, I mean, I should have been buying everything. And once I got into the, the our first store, that's what I would do is go down and buy everything, you know, that I thought I could get more than a nickel for. But in the early days, I was just going for my own back issues. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And so you also mentioned that um, you like the new look. Batman, um, as well as Adam and Green Lantern and Flash. Right. What do you think it is that Julius Schwartz offered to readers at the time that, let's say, Weisinger and some of the other editors didn't? Schwartz didn't write down to people. Even Weisinger pulled together a really good Superman mythos that was interesting, but it was still being written for 12-year-olds or something. Schwartz wrote for an older audience. I mean, Schwartz came out of science fiction fandom 
Um, and he did fanzines when he was a kid and stuff. And, and um, I think he appreciated the fact that there's an older audience for comics. And I think he wrote to that audience. I had friends that were already, you know, that I got that I met at that point that were older than me, like Michelle was, you know, three, four years older than me. Tom Tallman was another good buddy. He had a job at the post office. He was a little older. And there, those guys love Carl Barks and they love the Schwartz, the Schwartz DC books, the Adam Strange and, and Green Lantern. I mean, they were just written, I think, to an older audience, just like EC had done in the 50s. DC was doing that. They were just elevating the, the quality of the material. They did good Adam Strange is full of good scientific stuff, you know, good solid science fiction. Um, that it wasn't people just punching each other like like they still do today in comics. I mean, it was Adam Strange would solve problems scientifically, you know, by using his head and being smart. And I think um, you know, the the guys that were a little bit older than that, that's what that that's what really appealed to them. Who were your favorite comic artists by this point? Let's say 1966. Kirby. Steve Ditko, um, I think Infantino and Anderson over at DC. I don't know if I could say Kubert at this point. I think Kubert I learned to appreciate sort of later on. I mean, I loved that those early Hawkmans, but Kubert has sort of a different style. Yeah. If you throw Stranko into the mix, all of a sudden, whoa, Stranko is like the man representing the whole new, a new younger generation of artists. This is be pre Neil Adams. Adams yeah. didn't come into the story at that point. Um, yeah, so. You know, Stranko was a big deal. I mean, everybody was really excited to see Stranko start to develop in Strange Tales. And then when The Shield started coming out, it was like, you know, yeah, that was the equivalent of Frazetta, you know, showing up in comics. Now, of course, and that brings in Frazetta and all that. I mean, we very soon in 65, 66, 67, we all started collecting the good artists, uh, which could be Carl Barks. That's fine. But they're also Frazetta, Al Williamson, Wally Wood. Um, Roy Crankle, you know, all the guys that had been doing EC comics and had been doing Atlas stuff for, for Stan after EC, you know, went belly up and, you know, there was no price guide and no internet and everything at that point. So what you did is when you found a stack of old comics, you just start piling through them and going, Oh, there's a story by Angela Torres or, Oh, there's a Wally Wood story in this Atlas comic. That's weird. Or you'd find some other off-brand thing and go, you know, oh, there's a, a story by Frazetta or something. Yeah. He was doing those silly little funny animal things, little one-pagers. And so we'd started looking for that kind of thing, too. That's cool. So those names guided the back issue collecting, basically. Yeah. Uh, were you looking at pulp magazine reprint books as well at this point? As soon as the one of the first books on pulps came out, I know I picked it up and got sort of interested in pulps. But we didn't see... As a kid, I didn't see much as far as, far as pulps go. Um, I came across one batch at the flea market, a big stack of Planet uh, stories, which was still, I still love Planet and I've got, I've got them all. I got all of them now. That was the first time I actually bought a bunch of pulps. I think they were, they were, the guys wanted me, well, they were two for a quarter or something like that, but they were from the forties. And so they were, that was ancient history. In, in 19, say, 66 or something when I, when I picked those up. But other than that, my pulp experience didn't start until we got into the store. And when we opened the store in 68, and people would bring pulps into us, they'd bring you a big box of amazing stories and fantastic adventures and the common pulps. I don't remember getting a big stack of shadows, um, any of the really 
you know, weird tales. You know, you didn't get the really sexy pulps. I mean, they got the more common science fiction pulps in various conditions. I mean, could be in anything. We'd buy them for whatever, a nickel or a dime a piece. And then whatever we did, we'd charge, we'd split up the good ones we wanted amongst the guys in the store and then sell the rest of them. So it means most of the good stuff just got split up and went into our collection. Oh boy, I've got another copy of Weird Tales. That's cool, you know, take it home. What was your favorite EC Comics story? Well, my favorite story, definitely. Um, what, um, My World? No, no, no. I, You know, when you say my favorite, I, it should be, it ought to be, and it ought to be one of the science fiction stories, you know. But when you say my favorite story, what always comes up for me, it's I think it's a Tales from the Crypt story drawn by, I think it's George Evans, but it could be Jack Davis. It's about an old fat guy that has a care home for old people and he's pocketing all the money from the government to take care of the old people and then giving them dregs and um, abusing them. And he has this really nasty dog that he sicks on him and stuff. And um, ah, how horrible. One day they, they overpower this guy and shove him into a closet or something. And then he hears all this construction going on outside. And um, he goes, what the hell are these guys doing? I mean, this is crazy. And he gets outside and he goes, oh, there's a, there's a maze. They built this maze. That's really weird. Okay, well, I'm, you know, I can get out of this maze. And so the first thing that happens is he hears his dog who's been starving to death for the last two or three days while they've been building this maze. And he goes, oh shit, the dog's out. Oh, and it's a really ferocious dog. He goes, oh shit. And he starts running through there. And then he starts getting scraped. He goes, oh shit, they put razor blades in the walls of this maze. And then all of a sudden the lights go out. And that's, you know, that's one of my favorite, one of my favorite horror stories anyway. You know, it's like this yeah. guy really got his come up. And yeah, he did. And what a cool ending, too. Um, yeah. I think yeah. my favorite is the tainted meat, you know, butcher. Yeah. Shop. And I don't know <laughs> why. Hate the meat, taint, but it's the motion or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I can't get that last panel out of my head with the wife and like the guy's ears and are in the are being sold um so what was your favorite golden age comic book company of stuff you liked looking back at well i'd have to say quality i would have loved to have been collecting all the timely comics but number one they were scarce and number two they were expensive so you know sure i would love to have gotten captain america one through ten with simon and kirby but they were almost impossible to come across and they were they were already priced up so when I got into comics, the cool thing for me was quality. I considered quality to have some of the superior artists, actually better than a lot of Timelys and a lot of DCs. Buzzy Arnold, the guy that ran quality, really cared about getting decent artists, you know, reasonably good material. And so you got Jack Cole doing Plastic Man. You got Gustafson doing um, whatever the hell Gustafson did, a lot of odd strips. You had Reed Crandall um, doing Blackhawk and Firebrand. And you know, a bunch of bunch of forgettable characters, but it was Reed Crandall. And there was just good, really good material in the quality comics, and they were affordable. You could collect police comics and plastic man, um it hit and smash and stuff, and Blackhawk, especially. I love Blackhawk. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yeah, each of us, this little group that I keep talking about, we all sort of had our little specialty. And mine was quality. John Barrett's was MLJ's. Um, Michelle's was Nidor or Standard, which we all gave her a really hard time about because Standard has the crappiest artists in the golden age, but they had Schomburg covers. So you got to give her that. Uh, Jim Buser, I think, was into DCs. Again, a little tougher to collect. It's tough to get those more funds and those adventures and stuff. But um, And 
boy, I think there's a lot of DCs that are not very exciting. Um, all Flash, Flash in the general, Flash in general in the 40s until um, uh, Infantino and some of the good guys started doing it. Flash was not a very good comic. It was it had a lot of humor in it. Didn't take they didn't take it very seriously. Whereas in quality, I mean, the superheroes pretty much they took them seriously. You know, so yeah. Anyway, so quality was my comic, my company, along with collecting the art, the Frazetta stuff, the Williams and stuff. And then all of a sudden a light went off and said, I should collect ECs. Why well, I'm, I'm going after all these Frazetta comics and other places, Williamson and stuff. I should collect all the ECs. So by, I don't know, 67 or something, I was thoroughly into collecting ECs and trying to put together all those, which I did eventually. You know, I had a ascending and descending list of all the EC comics that I keep track of how many I had, how many I still had to go up to, I think, I think there's 302. If I remember right, there's 302 ECs. If you don't count the old, the pre-trend stuff. You consider the best golden age years from 1940 to 1942. What is it about those years that are so precious as far as comic books go? Well, for one thing, all the artists were still there before the war uh, took them away. I mean, most of those guys went off to fight in World War II. And so guys like Bill Everett, you know, he's he's doing stuff in Marvel Mystery up to like Marvel Mystery 33, 32, 33. And he's gone. Boom. And he comes back after the war. Jack Cole, Jack Cole might have he might have gotten a deferral. He might have worked through the whole the whole wartime. Reed Crandall. Reed Crandall might have worked through it too, but a lot of guys left. And also there's just a whole, the whole early comics, the big logo thing when they still had the giant, like DC had big, they call them the big logo issues of adventure and Batman and stuff when they had bigger logos and everything was 64 pages. And there was a lot of all those startup companies. I mean, Centaur was even still around in 41. The only comic book company that managed to go out of business when everybody else is making money hand over fist, Centaur couldn't cut it. Or <laughs> <laughs> what their problem was, it probably was distribution. They probably had little, they probably had bad distribution. They weren't going getting across the country. I mean, that's the primo period, I'd say, you know, 39 to, to 42. I mean, like you look at Timely just by itself. And in, in by 1943, 44, Timely is a shadow of itself. They still got the heroes but they don't have very good artists. They've got these second tier artists that are doing human torch and, and submariner and stuff. And they're not very good. You know, even Captain America's, you know, got Schomburg, but after you get past the cover, you know, sometimes that interior stuff is pretty, pretty bland. Yeah. You were also into fiction house. Is that right? Yeah. I just like the whole adventure strip thing and maybe fiction house really relates to the pulps pretty closely. And maybe that's part of why I really liked fiction house because there's planet comics and there's planet stories. I mean, they're directly related to each other. They're by the same company. Again, they're affordable. In fact, in fiction house, when I first started going to conventions in, um, in New York in 70, there was a guy back there that had a basement full of fiction house and he would bring a ton of them to the show and sell them for, I think, Two bucks a piece or two fifty a piece for just about anything. Jungles, jumbos. They were a little dry and sometimes even to the brittle point. So they evidently had been stored in a hot area. But he just had tons of these things. And so what I would do at the end of the show, I was already a dealer at that point. I was always a dealer. I mean, even in seventy, we had a table. So I was never, you know, approaching it quite from the fan standpoint. I was a dealer and a, and a collector at the same time because that's what you had to do. You know, is you had to make if you're going to make money and sell comics and you don't have a job, you better be dealing in comics. 
But anyway, at the end of this show, this guy would sell me his table for, I don't know what it was, 75 cents a piece or a buck a piece. And I'd haul all these, these fiction house back to California. And of course I'd go, well, oh, yeah, I should keep that one and that one and that one. And I yeah, slowly started building up a fiction house collection. Plus, yeah. you know, you got Will Eisner and Lou Fine in the very earliest ones. And so that's the beginning of a couple more of the great people in comics. So those are, those are really fun. Yeah. And Sheena is, it's, it's really beautifully done. You know, they're consistent, you know, and it's good girl stuff. And, you know, as a teenager, I mean, all that good girl stuff appeals to you. Uh, these girls swinging on vines through the jungle. I mean, uh, whatever that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that you can't means. lose. Not with the yeah. adolescent uh, boys on that one. Um, hey, hey Stranko liked it. So it must be good. Right. You know, right. <laughs> he's a man with good taste. You started selling comics around 1967 and you're also dealing comics in the Rocket Blast comic collectors. Is that correct? John and Jim and I, we were all doing the same thing. We started putting ads into the Rockets Blast and trying to get things for ourselves. Sometimes we put a want list in there. Other times we'd just be selling duplicates, things that we, you know, something I picked up some groovy comic at the at the flea market and I've already got a copy of it. Well, I'll put it in an ad in the Rockets Blast and see if oh. I can flip it and, you know, buy something else. And the ads were super cheap. I mean, we're not talking about full page ads. We're talking about, you know, two inches or three inch ad in, the, in there. How much would that cost? I don't think a page costs you more than 12, 10, 12 bucks, but 10, 12 bucks is a lot of money back then. So you could get a portion of a page probably for a buck and a half or two. Oh, bucks. I see. And then you can put various things. You would be selling multiple items on that space. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, that was, that was the way the business was done back in at that time with everything was through the rocket blast or maybe a couple other fanzines, but the rocket blast was the main source. And, People would just put in little ads and start getting getting to know other people and people would put out little lists and you'd get the list from the guy and and buy some stuff. You know, there was all the old dealers, Bill Thaling. And now what other fanzines were you into at the time that were going around fandom besides Rocket Blast Comic Collector? I, I read Yancey Street Journal was one of them, but there were a few, right? Yeah. Well, the Yancey Street Journal came out of San Francisco. So those were almost local guys. That was Bill Dubay, who ends up an editor at at Warren at some point, uh, Marty Arbenich, um, Rudy Frankie. Rudy Frankie was a teacher, art teacher, I think, in San Jose. And he was involved with Voice of Comicdom, which those guys also may have been involved with. Um, and Voice of Comicdom quickly developed and got to be a good fanzine. They started doing Corbin, Corbin stuff and doing interviews. Um, the best one has got to be Graphic Story Magazine. Mm. Started out as Fantasy Illustrated, I think, for the first issue or two. Mm-hmm. And that's Richard Kyle. Graphic Story was the magazine. I mean, that's where the, the absolute best material was coming out of. They did a little bit of amateur strips. They had George Metzger in there, who was actually a local in San Jose. Um, we all grew up knowing George. And then, of course, George went on to do underground comics. And Landon Chesney, who pretty much stayed as a fan artist but then they started getting these really good articles um you know on wolverton they did two issues on wolverton they did an issue on red berry who's still obscure even to this day but red berry was a really good strip back in the 40s and there was graphic story world that kyle was also involved in that was more news and stuff and then also comic readers squatron Spawn. Yeah, squatron right? Spawn with yeah those were the also the giant ones yeah jerry wiest yeah. and and those guys putting out Squatron. Yeah, those are, I mean, for EC fans, that was like, it didn't get any better than those things. Yeah. We didn't get them very often, but when we got them, they were great. And by the time when Squatron 3 came out in 69, early 70, I was I was already dealing stuff. So I was buying copies of that from Jerry Wiest, you know, and reselling them. 
And that's how I started my fanzine business. That's what I wanted to carry in my fanzine business was beautiful fanzines like that. But instead, mostly what I was carrying is underground comics, <laughs> you know, like Zap and, you know, that sort of thing. Robert Crumb, yeah. And then also Star Studded, and I have some copies of it, and it's a fanzine. I had read that it wasn't as celebrated as some of those other ones because it was more like their own characters. I can't speak to how popular Star Studded was in general, and it, and it may have been more popular in general, but my memory of it back in those early days we're talking about, back in the, because it had been around, it probably started before I ever got into fandom, probably started yeah. in 63, 64, yeah. but Star Studded was not particularly cheap. At that point, I think it was cost 75 cents, which was a significant amount of money when comics are 12 cents a piece or t- even 20 cents a piece. Um and it was amateur strips. So, yeah, it was only for the well-heeled <laughs> amongst collectors. So I, I think I got an issue or two and said, nah, I'd rather spend my money on something else. And so I never became a big, hardcore, star, star-studded fan. Although now I'm finally filling in my, my collection. You know, And, of course, I know Buddy Saunders really well. And he's part of that Texas trio that put those out. And I appreciate him much more now in retrospect, looking at what they were doing at the time. But the time, yeah, I wasn't wasn't a big fan of amateur strips, you know? I mean, right. I'd, I'd rather learn about the history of comics. I'd rather see more of the guys I like, the Frazettas, the Williamsons, those guys. And now what was the first convention that you went to? Because it wasn't a comics convention, right? It was a science fiction convention? In yeah, yeah, it was um, the World Science Fiction Convention. It was in Berkeley at the Claremont Hotel in 1968. And the whole bunch of us went up there and my off-repeated story about that is that we took our bedrolls with us and we slept on the lawn because, you know, we were 16, you know, I mean, <laughs> we we didn't stay in hotels and we didn't have that kind of money and that sort of thing. So, but it was 50 miles from San Jose and we wanted to be there for the three days. So, and the Claremont didn't shut us down. I don't know how we managed to do that. We must have quietly gotten behind some some bushes where nobody noticed us. And I mean, even science fiction fandom, you know, they do tend to look down on comic fans. So we probably were an embarrassment, you know, wandering around the show. Um, I was with a buddy from um, Gilroy that was more into science fiction um, than than I was. Although, again, there was a lot of overlap into science fiction fandom. I mean, I was reading. I read all the Tarzans years before that and all the Burroughs books. And I was reading Asimov and and um, Ray Bradbury and, and, you know, the science fiction paperbacks you could buy at the flea market or you could buy anywhere. Um, so, you know, we were there for the science fiction part of the show, too. But again, we had a table. Um, we four of us split an eight foot table. So we all had a little, you know, two by <laughs> two by two section of the table. And we're selling I think we were mostly selling comics. I don't think we were selling any science fiction stuff. I, all I remember visually is just sort of stacks of comics. And usually we'd wander off and leave the table to the, whoever drew the short straw, I guess. <laughs> we'd be looking for stuff because there was overlap between science fiction fandom and comics. Were there some comic stealing going on? Was money from that part of what started your Seven Sons first comic book shop? The store would have been open by then mm. because the World Science Fiction Con would be Labor Day mm. of 68. And the store opened in um, March. So we were already established in the store and doing our thing. So we probably just pulled some of our stuff out of the store and mm-hmm. took it up there and we're hustling it and looking for more stuff. And and like I say, we all were also science fiction fans. I mean, not as much as comic fans, but, you know, we all read 
you know, our favorite science fiction people and we're looking for stuff. So, you know, I would have been looking for Burroughs things for one thing. I love the, the old hardcovers with um, Gross and Dunlap uh, hardcovers with the jackets of the Tarzans and the Mars books and all that. And so we would have been happily trying to find things like that at the show. Mm-hmm. And so tell us about starting the seven. It's seven sons, not seventh sons, right? Yes, seven sons. The count S E V E N. Yes, and tell us about starting that. And who were the seven sons that? So there was Michelle, um, Tom Tallman, John Barrett, Jim Buser, me. Al Castle was our honorary member. He never actually worked in the store, but he was our honorary seventh son. The joke about him was that he'd steal office supplies from the place he worked in and give us office supplies. (laughs) And seven was Frank Scadina. You could practically write a a novella about the seven sons. Technically, there was six of us, but seven sounded better than six. We only pitched in, as I remember, 35 bucks a piece. We only had to cover two months of rent. And I think the rent was 75 bucks a month. So we're talking about 150 bucks plus some kind of minor deposit. It was a storefront in downtown San Jose that nobody cared much about. It was off on the side street, same street as the, the bookstore that I talked about earlier, just a block away from the bookstore and only a couple blocks away from the San Jose, um, the campus, which is now San Jose State University, which back then was San Jose State. But San Jose, downtown San Jose was sort of at a low ebb, just like a lot of downtown urban areas back in the 60s. And so, you know, somehow we were able to walk in and and rent this place and get a business permit. So all we were selling was used comics, not new comics, but used comics, used science fiction paperbacks. We might have done a little bit with records. Basically, you'd go to the flea market, get some stuff, take it back to the store and sell it there, right? Exactly. That was my deal. Yeah, yeah. And the other guys did a little bit of that, but I still had the advantage of being closer to the flea market. But we all had duplicates. And then stuff started coming in the door. I mean, people would bring in comics and go, wow, these are worth money. And we go, yeah, we'll give you 10 cents a piece for them. You know, <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and so stuff started coming in that way. But that store, technically, for all the, the, the hoopla that we do about that store and the fact that we opened up a little earlier than Gary Arlington did. Is Seven Sons considered the first comic book store? No, no. Um, the guy that wrote the book, um, Dan... Dan Garino. Garino, yeah. Um, he really tried to pin down what the first comic book store was. And we're early. We're not the first. I mean, depends on how you define a comic book store. To me, at least in my, my knowledge of just the West Coast, Cherokee Books, where Burt Blum was selling back issues of comics, Cherokee Bookstore was a used bookstore, but they had a mezzanine. And Bert was selling back issue comics out of the mezzanine. It was, it was a place as big as any of our early stores, just happened to be within a bookstore. But that was that predates anything we did. To me, that's one of the first comic book stores. I can't can't claim any kind of, you know, fame. I mean, the only thing that we had different was we weren't trying to sell anything else. I mean, we were a pure comic book store, but Bert, Bert had much better comics than we ever we ever could approach in either of our stores. He had tons of wonderful stuff. And we'd drive down there, the six hour drive from San Jose and go to Bert's store. Back East, I know, I think Bob Bell um, may have credit with maybe having the first store. Again, it might've been a thrift store that sort of morphed into a comics and popular culture store. So anyway, no, no claim on that. The only thing we can claim is that we were the first store maybe in the Bay Area in Arlington, opened a month later. And of course, Arlington kept his store open. <laughs> well, you know, he financially, Arlington was never really together. He had all kinds of benefactors that would try to bail him out and help him. 
and write checks for them and stuff. But he ran that store for what decades, you know, whereas our little store was, you know, came and came and went pretty fast. I'm always careful to give plenty of credit to all the rest of the guys. You know, we just our timing was just, you know, early, but that's it. You know, for us, the store only lasted for a few months because Frank Scadina was this real case. He was an older guy. He was like 24 or so. He'd had um, polio when he was a kid, very active physically. He was kind of overweight. His mom really took care of him. And he had never gotten a career and gotten an education or anything. And so when we got, he got, he was one of the guys involved in this. In fact, he was the oldest guy of any of us. Nobody was, nobody else was approaching 24. I was 16. His mom said, here's a good thing. My son could suddenly involved with this store and he could sell stuff and he likes comics. He was a big Western fan. He'd read comics in the fifties and he liked the serials and stuff. And so his mom basically bought the rest of us out. Oh, you know, okay. which was probably the stupidest thing we might have been doing. But, you know, she offered us more money than we could you know, imagine. You know, we all got a few hundred bucks <laughs> out of this store. So we said, sure. OK, yeah, we'll sell the store to Frank and go off and do our thing. But then we turned around the next year in 69. We went to the four of us went to Houston. Jim Buser again, John Barrett, Dick Swan, who had come into our group. And myself, we went to Houston uh, for the first comic book show that we'd ever been to. And we came back from Houston. We bought out a couple guys at tables at the end of the show. Remember, this is still pre-price guide. So everybody's, you know, playing fast and loose on what comics are worth. So we come back with a carload of comics. We go, oh, what are we going to do? Let's open another store. There was no there was no agreement with Frank never to open another store. So, boom, we, all of a sudden we opened another store in, in um, the early summer of 69. And that was called Comic World. And that was a tiny, tiny little place. It was actually an old stair, a staircase for a hotel in, um, just around the corner from our old store. And you could not put your hands out and point your fingers. You had to, like, cup one of your hands. I mean, it was that wide. We're talking, what's that, five feet? Uh-huh. It was tiny. It was tiny. But the price was right. Um, it had formerly been a place called Bead World. And we were so cheap and unimaginative. We said, well, OK, we'll just paint out Bert Bead and put comic. <laughs> ah, so it was comic world. work. Yeah. And Bead World had moved next door. So we got to be friends with those guys. And so bingo, we got a new store with four partners instead of six or seven partners. Uh-huh. And we did that. We ran that for about a year and a half, something like that. Why did Comic World end in 1970? I was starting college and at San Jose State, which was what, three blocks away from the store. Um, and like a fool, I signed up for 18 units. So I sort of thought I probably wouldn't have time to be running a store and taking 18 units majoring in physics at, in college. And John Barrett was in his second year. Um, the two of us, John and I, had bought out the other two partners by then. So it was just the two of us. We things happen fast in these days. We Dick Swan and um, and Jim Buser decided ah they didn't want to be working in the store. They wanted to be doing other stuff. Jim was going off to Stanford. He'd gotten a a scholarship, a sports scholarship to Stanford, and so he wasn't going to be close enough to be you know commuting down and running this little dinky winky store. We didn't make a lot of money. I mean we, you know we. We'd have days that we'd make 20 bucks, 25 bucks. I mean, you know, it was it was grim. You know, I mean, we were not we were still not even selling new comics then. This was really primitive, you know. Um, so anyway, we just arbitrarily said, yeah, let's close the store. I'm going to be busy with college. John's busy with he's he's majoring in photojournalism and stuff. Um, so we just shut it down, you know, when I started college in the fall. 
What was your uh, major in college? Well, it started out as physics, but I, I learned my lesson really quickly on that and said there's way too much math involved in physics. And then I fell in love with English, but I figured out I didn't know what I could do with English. I didn't want to be an English teacher. I didn't fancy I could be a writer. So I sort of just kept going to college and taking courses and finally said, well, I guess I should. I'd already started my business at almost exactly the same time. And that the reason I started my my mail order business was because all of a sudden I had no money. I mean, in starting in 68, I was this little kid with a, with a pocket full of money. You know, I mean, we had a store that brought in just enough to keep us buying comics and stuff. And all of a sudden I had no income and no job. So I said, well, I'll start selling fanzines and underground comics and stuff. And so I did that parallel to going to college. Eventually I just said, I just, maybe I should take business. I mean, that's what I'm doing. Right. And so I got in, I took, I got, I ended up getting a degree in business administration, marketing. Was this the beginning of the bud plant mail order? Yeah, exactly. And that's had different names throughout the years, but that's basically the beginning of Bud's art books, right? Is it's that all the, yeah, it's all the same business. It's it, all the it same business. Changed, it just changed names a few times, but yeah, it started out with ads in the Rockets Blast. And then when the Comic Buyer's Guide came along, I put uh, I started advertising very regularly in Comic Buyer's Guide. And um, and I started putting out little eight and a half by 11 piece of paper with all the new releases on it. And then I started putting in a little catalog with a couple pages and stapled. And then the catalogs got a little bit bigger. And it just, yeah, first it was just me, which is because nobody had made up names back then. You know, you sold a few comics through the mail. You were Bud Plant selling a few comics through the mail or Terry Stroud or or Dave Alexander or anything, you know. And by the time I thought about actually putting putting a name on the business, I said, well, I'm getting kind of known. I was going to shows, meeting a lot of people, buying a lot of fanzines, selling a lot of stuff. And everybody, you know, in this little world of comics, everybody knew you're starting to get to know who I was. And I said, I can't change my name now. I don't want to be the comic shop or something i'm just going to be bud plant so mm-hmm. yeah started out just my name and then it, i incorporated it at one point and it was bud plant incorporated and then it was bud plant comic art company and then another story but you know we finally made it bud's art books trying to break out of the, the comic book mode and and appeal to people that might also want art books and not want to deal with comic book stuff mm-hmm. little did i know So you got some stuff from the flea market to sell through this, but how did you get also the supply for the underground comics, like the crumb books and zap and all that and selling it through the mail order like this? Well, the underground comics started with Gary Arlington because by that point, Gary had been in business for a couple of years. I think I went up and talked to him and um, he said, yeah, I'll sell you comics at X discount. I mean, comics were, I think, 50 cents. Average underground was a 50 Mm -hmm. cent book. I think he sold them to me for like 27 or 26 cents a piece. It's like, okay, fine. So I, I, I bought a whole bunch of underground comics, started listing them on my list and started taking them to shows. I mean, starting in 70, I would have taken in 70. I took them to, well, in 69 in Houston, I don't think I was dealing. I don't think I was dealing underground comic shit or fanzines. I think it all started in 70, but by 70, when I went to uh, Oklahoma city and, and on to New York, I was selling underground comics and fanzines. Um, so I bought a bunch from Gary. Gary came back. The The next natural thing was just to go to the comic book companies, which were all the underground comics were in San Francisco and Berkeley. Brent mm-hmm. Mint was in Berkeley. Last Cast didn't exist quite yet. They they came along later. Captain and Company was an early company. They did the Dan O'Neill books. And then um, Ripoff Press was the big one. I drive up there 
once a month or something, you know, all all through my college years and pick up restocks of the comics and all the new comics and bring them home and type them out and make out a catalog or a list and get them out to people. And then the, the fanzine stuff came naturally from going to the shows. You go to the shows, guys bring their fanzines to the show, their new fanzine that they just did. So I meet Jerry Wiest and I start buying Squatron and, you know, um, Voice of Comic Done, I mentioned that was out of San Jose. So that was easy. Um, and all these other fanzines, you, you pick them up at the show because that would be their big way of selling them. And all of a sudden I have a contact and I slowly build up those contacts and, and kept carrying issues of fanzines. Now, you also published your magazine, Promethean Enterprises, around right. this time, because that went from 1969 to 1975. And right. that was with Jim Vatabunker and Al Devorin. How was that distributed and printed? And how did you guys do that? Initially, it was through the back door of a print shop. Jim Vatabunker, he might have been out of college by then, and he had majored in business management and decided he hated it. It gave him migraine headaches to manage people. So he went back and started working in a print shop. Boom. All of a sudden, we got a back door into a print shop. And so we'd go in and we'd pay some guy off hours. I mean, legal, but, you know, the, the guy would come in off hours and print the magazine for us, the pages. And then we'd run them through. The, we'd do it ourselves. We'd run it through the folder. We'd staple them. We'd cut them. Jim would paste them up and make, make the plates back when they made plates from things. And so we did it through the back door and they kept our expenses down. It wasn't until the fifth issue in 1974 that we actually did it sort of officially through the front door and mm-hmm. just had them do the whole job because we printed 5,000 of those. And it was, that was beyond our capabilities. But before that, we were collating them and stapling them and doing all the stuff ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we were only bringing out one issue a year, basically. So right. it wasn't like a tremendous job. That was now, the same way I was doing my early catalog is I just print them up, fold them, collate them, staple them with a little hand stapler and, you know, keep it, keep it cheap. So, <laughs> yeah. Also, I, I got to mention in the first issue, there was another guy, Pat Price. He sort of dropped out after after the first or second issue, but there was another editor. Al Davron was our key to the underground people because he was a big comics fan, but he also had gotten no crumb in Spain and he knew Robert Williams really well. And he was an older guy, slightly older guy, had a family, had a car. And, you know, he'd drive to L.A. and see Robert Williams and go to these shows they put on once in a while and the Zap shows. And he got to know he introduced me to crumb. Um, so he was our in with all the underground stuff, whereas Jim Wadabonker and I were more the the straight, straighter guys that were more into Frazetta and Crankle and all that mm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's why Promethean ended up being this hodgepodge of, of underground and overground stuff that we put together. What year did you first go to the New York Comic Con and meet Phil Suling? Well, that was 1970. So it would have been the summer of 1970. In 69, we had driven um, my John John's father's Ford LTD, which we really abused. You know, we drove it too fast and we spilled stuff inside it and really made a mess of it. So his father said, I'm not loaning another car to go to shows. So we didn't have a car. And Michelle had started going to the Suling Cons in 68, um, and she was driving her own car. But for some reason in 70, she didn't have a car available or something, or she didn't want to use her car or something. So I bought, my first car was a van. Um, I went down to used car lot with my dad, and he backed up the loan for 2000 bucks, and I bought a van, and we packed it all full of, you know, comics and stuff, and there was it was either four or five of us. We were really <laughs> we were overloaded already and, you know, set out, you know, set out for Oklahoma City. 
July would have been late June, early July, you know, all determined we were going to have tables and we were going to, you know, sell stuff at the shows. Right. When you met Phil Suling, what were some of the discussions? What was your impression of him when you met him? Michelle had been back there two years before. And so she had gotten to know Phil and she had slept on his apartment floor. He had an apartment for his family, had two daughters and his wife. And he lived in a place called Luna Park, which was right off of um, Coney Island. And so Michelle sort of introduced us. So in 70, we actually had the, the story is we, we dropped off Michelle somewhere because she wanted to go through Arkansas or something like that. She was trying to get make sure she went through every state in the, in the United States or something. And so we said, OK, we'll meet you back in New York. I think she's going to take a bus back from where she was. It was myself, I think, and John Barrett and Jim Buser. Anyway, we, we end up at Phil's apartment. We had no place to stay in New York and we don't get into New York until like 1030 or 11 o'clock that night. And um, we go, well, maybe he's up, you know, so we go up to his apartment on the 13th floor and we can sort of hear a TV going. We go, well, maybe he's up. Maybe he can, he'll put us up because, again, we we stayed in rest areas and stuff. We didn't have money to stay in hotels across the U.S. You know, all the money was going into gas and buying a table to show. So um, anyway, we knock on the door and Philip comes Phil comes to the door in his underwear. He's got long johns on and that's it. Big hulking, hulking guy, a little overweight, you know, uh, real imposing. And uh, oh, he goes, you, I know you guys are, you're the San Jose guys. Okay, come on in. And and that was our introduction to him. He put us up, you know, fed us, took care of us. And then we helped him. We kind of helped him with this convention because he didn't have a vehicle then. And so it was real handy for, to use our van and drive stuff into the city and drive the stuff back home again. And, and also we ended up doing security at the show. Um, once the show opened, you know, he didn't have an armed guard or anything fancy like that, but he, you know, you, you hire a couple guys to spend the night in the, in the dealer room and sleep on the floor. Well, that's what we did. It's like, okay. You know, and he probably put it, he probably paid for a night of our hotel, or something like that to pay us back. Cause most of his, his help was volunteer. It was mostly his students. Cause he was a high school, high school teacher. That was sort of our introduction to, to dealing with Phil, but Phil became a mentor to me. I mean, he was an older guy. He was really smart, really outgoing, a life of the party. And, um, you know, he knew all the stories and he knew all the players. He already already was friends with Steranko and Gray Morrow and a lot of the early artists because he met them all putting on shows. I think his show started, he started putting on the New York show in, I don't know, either 67 or 68. Took it over from Dave Kaler and some of the other guys that had done it. Bernie Bubness, I think. That was the first one, yeah. Yeah, and and Phil sort of, you know, the show kept growing you know, by leaps and bounds, but it was still a relatively small show in 69, 70. He got Hal Foster in there, I think in what, 69? Yeah, I think Gary Groth went with his dad and Hal Foster was there. And I think- Yeah, Gil you got Gary. that famous picture of the banquet. Yeah, it, yeah, that was the year before, I think, huh? Yeah. yeah, that was, I think that was 69. So I missed, I missed that one. But everybody and their brother was there. Jeff Jones, yeah. you know, Al Williamson, Gray Morrill. I mean, you know, they were all there, you know. I mean, that was the big event. It was, that was the San Diego equivalent, but back then, you know, in on a, on a bit of a smaller scale. Paul Levitt said that Phil came up with the ideas of panels and programming and structure within a convention. When he went to that 1971, was there a sense that it was more advanced and put together than other conventions you had seen? Well, we didn't have much experience with other conventions. We only been to a couple, really. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd been to Houston in 69 and Oklahoma City in 70. I think the main thing about it was New York was just so much more of a mecca for yeah. 
for the professionals. I mean, there was professionals running around and yeah, Phil definitely, I think developed more um, events going on at the show. Um, but I, we weren't as conscious of that. I mean, I spent so much time in the dealer's room. That's mostly what I was doing was either standing behind a table or out talking to friends and looking for comics. I was not a big guy into going to panels, to be honest. And so I missed out a certain on a certain aspect of, of those early shows because of that. It was a step up. I, I didn't really recognize it, I guess, at the time, except I knew that it was the show that we wanted to go to because we were willing to try 3,000 miles to go to it, you know, and, yeah. we, and that was early time. And there weren't other people driving in from the West Coast. That's why we got to stay with Phil and we got sort of treated a little bit better, I think, because, you know, nobody else was coming from that far away. Yeah, there's a connection for him, too, it sounds like. Yeah. So then did you buy product from Phil as well? Did he start distributing toward your Bud's Art mail order? Was there a financial connection also made? Phil and I both got into wholesale in parallel about the same time. So in 70, Phil might have been doing... um Wits End. He might have he might have taken over the distribution for Wits End at that point, and he did publish Dark Domain, which was the Gray Moral book. But he wasn't really doing much as far as general wholesale. I mean, there was just this little fledgling business, just like mine was. And and we both started, you know, people started coming to us. I mean, guys that had stores and stuff, um, and said, you know, hey, can I buy copies of a fanzine at a discount? And that's how we both sort of slipped into wholesale. Phil, I, I would buy Witsins from him because he was the, the guy that was handling the, the grunt work for Witsend, you know, after Wally Wood had turned it over to John Benson and John Benson didn't want to be filling orders. So he turned it over to Phil, you know, so this is all pre the direct market. So I have to say that Phil and I sort of grew together and we started working together. We started um, going in on fanzines where somebody would come out with, say, the latest issue of Squatron. Benson would do it. You know, we'd say, OK, we'll take 1,500 copies between the two of us and we'll just split them, ship half of them to him and half, them to, half to Phil and half to me. Funny World was that way. I think we co-distributed Funny World. And there was a number of fanzines that were coming out like that. And then when the Phil got into the direct market, that was a whole nother scene. And that was one I wasn't really part of because I was not buying regular comic books and wholesaling them. I tried I tried really hard to stay out of that business. I didn't make it. I still got sucked into it by 1982. But for the first 11, 12 years of my business, I was just doing the fanzines and the underground comics, and that was it. But I was wholesaling them just, just like Phil was. And also alternative comics. You know, when the Peenies came out with ElfQuest, yeah, they had a really bad distributor at the beginning that totally screwed them over, and they came to me and wanted me to to start distributing it <laughs> like a fool. <laughs> I, I had already started publishing Undergrounds at that point, and I was already already doing the First Kingdom, and I said, "Oh, I already got a sword and sorcery book. I don't need another sword and sorcery comic." And I didn't really fancy myself a publisher anyway. I just had sort of fallen into doing a few Underground comics. I did Anomaly, which had a Corbin thing. And that was taken over by Jan Sternod, right? Anomaly. Well, Jan, no, Jan started it. Jan started Anomaly as a fanzine right. and did it as a fanzine for the first two or three issues. And then he comes to me and says, I want to do it as an underground. We could do a lot more copies, be a lot cheaper. And you've got the underground connection. You know, can we do it together? And I said, sure. Yeah. You know, because what I would do is gang print it with Last Gasp at that point. You know, you could walk in. I could walk into Last Gasp and say, I got an underground comic I want to do. So the next time you do one, you're going to, they're going to print the covers four up 
big giant sheet, well, one of those covers is going to be mine. And then they print the guts separately, slam them together, and you have an underground comic, and it costs you like nothing. It was like 12 cents a piece or something. It was really cheap to do. And I could do 10,000 or 20,000 copies of an underground. Say 10,000 copies would be 1,200 bucks. It wasn't a gigantic investment, and I could pull it off if I could take those and trade them to the other people. To, to last gasp and print mint and rip off, I'd trade them for the other underground comics I was selling. I see. And all of a sudden I have all these underground comics, the price it cost me to, to print mine. That's how I got sort of into that, that part of the business. You don't understand what, what having dredging up 50 year old memories is like. <laughs> right. That's true. Cause for me, that'd be negative seven. So. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Not much there. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a vacuum at this point. Um, how did you feel when Jack Kirby left Marvel in 1970? Probably, in some ways, my interest in the contemporary comics was not probably as great by 1970 as it was back in 64, 65. I was going to college. I was into underground. I was smoking dope. You know, I mean, there's all this other stuff going on. And, and of course, Jack Kirby just immediately goes over to D.C. So it's like, well, OK, that's cool. You know, I mean, what kind of interesting stuff is he going to We didn't know what he was going to do at D.C. Now, from my perspective, I'm not nearly as big a fan of the Kirby stuff at DC as the Kirby stuff at Marvel. I know a lot of people love the fourth world stuff and Mr. Miracle and all that, and I can appreciate it, but I don't have the, the love and fondness of it that I do of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee doing the Fantastic Four and doing the Hulk and doing, you know, all their, their groovy stuff back in the 60s. So, so, but I didn't know that at the time. In 1970, it was just, oh, Jack's going to work for another company. Well, that happens, you know. The, the guys at EC all went over and went to work for other companies. I mean, it happens and you just move on. And so I didn't really, it wasn't a momentous occasion, I guess. Right. It was more like turnover. It happens. Something yeah, like it happens. And hey, that's going to be exciting. There's going to be Kirby doing number one comics at DC. That's kind of cool. From a dealer point of view, it's like you got to get those number ones. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was your impression of the Overstreet Comics price guide when that came out in 1970? Did you use it much? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was really crude back then, but still it was almost the first time anybody put together a guide. I think um, what Argosy Bookstore, I think it put together something or maybe a Passaic Bookstore. There was a couple funky guides before that. So it was a help, you know, especially gathering some of the information together. Back on the fanzine thing, Michelle Nolan had put together those indexes. She did a Timely Index and a Nidor Index and God knows what else. And that was where a lot of information would come from. Um, and then Rockets Blast put together specials about Timely. I love the Timely one. I read it over and over and over again, talking about who was in what issues of what and all these oddball heroes and stuff. And that was where we got our information. But now the price guide started to put that kind of information in. You suddenly find out the first appearance of, oh, Green Lantern, first appearance was an All-American 16. Before that, it was where all word of mouth. There wasn't any real documentation. Mm, I see. You know, um, so it's also good to find like what was the collector's item too, like what's identified as this. Yeah, but the early price guide was still pretty crude. I don't know. I'm not sure technically how much we used it. I mean, everybody bought every one of them as they came out, and eventually, you know, we we used it more and more. And of course, back then it was probably in some ways a lot more accurate than it is now. I mean, now the market is. It's crazed. I mean, there's still people, our, our friend, our mutual friend, Jeff Kepley, he talks to me about guide value on something. And I go, well, 
I don't, when I buy comics now, I do it from my gut. I just sort of go, well, what feels like a comfortable price to me? Mm. And I don't really look it up in the guide and go, oh, geez, that's, you know, that's, that's not the guide price because the guide price has become less and less important, at least for the kind of stuff that I'm interested in, mm-hmm. you know, the, the tougher golden age for one thing, the mm-hmm. pre-code comics and stuff like that. But I mean, I do use it, you know, as a, as a basis for pricing stuff, or, but if something's a guide and a half and I want it, I'm going to pay, I'm going to buy it. I don't care, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and evidently there's a lot of other people out there like that because stuff's going for crazy money right now. Mm. And the guide has become, it could be a general help, I think on more common comics, but it's become less and less important on the really rare stuff mm. on the real key stuff and the, and the really old, you know, old comics. Mm-hmm. So tell us about, when you went to the first San Diego Comic Con, like because Kirby was there, tell us about that. <laughs> uh, another thing I have very little memory of. <laughs> All the San Diego Comic Cons have have flushed together, and um, you know, I think when and I think of an old San Diego Comic Con, I think of the um, uh, what's the hotel, um, the hotel up in the hill with the swimming pool that. Uh, El Cortez or something? El Cortez. I think of the El Cortez, but of course, the, well, the very first one, it was in the basement of the hotel. There was only a couple hundred people there. There was like one or two girls. I think um, Bruce Hamilton's daughter was there. She was like 12 or 13. I mean, it was all guys, all geeky guys with a bunch of tables, and it was real dark. There might have been panels and stuff, but I kind of doubt it. I think the first one, the first one was a little spring show. It was like a one-day show or something. Mm -hmm. Um, It was mostly just a big room with a bunch of guys selling comics, which is closer to what the Houston, the early Houston and Oklahoma City shows and Dallas shows were. Mm -hmm. You know, they're mostly based around the dealer's room, and they might have had some films going on in another room, Mm -hmm. running serials or old movies or something. Um, So it was pretty, pretty basic. You know, there was a few other shows in Southern California. There was a sword and sorcery show put on by um, Bill Crawford. Mm. There was a Disney show. They had one at Disneyland and the guy actually never paid the Disneyland people for the show. He supposedly ran off with the proceeds and disappeared. So San Diego, the first or second San Diego show wasn't all that unique. It was just happened to be in San Diego. They happened to put on this little show. You know, we had no idea what it was going to develop into. And they, like I say, there was these other shows that, you know, were popping up here and there. There was a show in Phoenix that we went down to that Bruce, Bruce Hamilton was involved with. So it was one of several shows that were, you know, we'd go to anything we could get our hands on. There was a show in Portland. Schomburg was a guest at the show in Portland in 73. Oh, cool. Yeah. And that was cool. I just picked up an, a copy of his poster that he did for those, for that show. He did the, cover of the program book and a, and a nice little poster that yeah. uh-huh. drew original piece for it. And, um, you know, nice little Portland show. And, and I'm sure Dave Stevens was there as a kid, you know, doing his thing. So, yeah. And that didn't involve a trip across the country. Those cross country trips were sort of, you know, epic. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big thing to do, but when it's local, it's way easier. And, yeah. and so since they're kind of fused, can you tell the audience maybe um, one story or interaction with a couple of names before we go into the comics and comics kind of vacuum? Jack Kirby, did you have any interactions with him? My main interaction with Jack Kirby the, of my memory would be when he did a signing at my table, and that would have been much later. I don't remember interactions with those guys, you know, at the beginning of the, the early shows. Do you remember any early stories with Jim Steranko, like from the 70s or so? Steranko was basically... 
back then he was another hustler. He wasn't that much different from the rest of us. He was older. He was smarter and more handsome and a great artist, but he was also a convention hustler at that point. He'd have a table and he'd be trying to make money selling, you know, his history of the comics and anything else he had done. And so Stranko and I got together, sort of like Suling and I got together and we'd sell each other stuff. Oh, cool. I mean, sensuous Rosetta ripoffs. We, you know, we'd sell that to each other and we were doing business together. I was anything Stranko did. I was suddenly a, a customer of his and buying them for my business. And he would buy, probably, he probably didn't buy very much from me. Probably mostly what I did was buy from him. But that's sort of how we got to know each other, sort of as, almost as peers in that little convention world of doing shows, because Stranko was really approachable. I mean, you know that, you Mm -hmm. know, he's really an easy guy to get along with stuff. And he was good friends with Phil Suling. He knew his, he'd done pictures in Phil's daughter's room. So he did him a couple drawings that were always on the wall of their, their bedroom. I remember those. Um, yeah. He described Phil as a force of nature. And I remember when I interviewed Stranko, he said that he was going to the Kaler convention as a dealer, actually. Um, so that's true. You're right. I, I almost kind of forget that aspect of him. He was imitating, you know, the captain company with the Warren in the Warren magazines with all those ads in the back. Stranko was doing the same thing in, in um, comic scene. And then in previews, yeah. he was, get copies of all the really groovy books doing really nice display ads if the cover wasn't very good he'd pick a picture inside and put the sexy girl on the cover and he was selling that stuff and so he was i'm not to compare myself with him but we were doing suling and i and stranko were doing a a similar thing we were all hustling that stuff selling that stuff to an ever-growing fandom i never quite thought of him like that but that totally makes sense uh it's clicking now yeah his advice for selling the most material at a show was to have a girl with lots of cleavage working for you behind the booth. And that gets the fanboys to come over and, you know, and buy stuff. And he's right back in those days. I mean, now San Diego, you can't, you can't turn around without bumping into a girl with, you know, hardly anything, you know, any clothing on. But back in those days, girls were few and far between at the shows and he'd bring these cute girls with lots of cleavage and, you know, <laughs> behind his table selling fanzines for him. The other Stranko story, I guess, would well, there's a couple. In Detroit, we had a great birthday party for a guy named Chester Grabowski, otherwise known as the Polish prick. Um, <laughs> and Chester Grabowski grew up with, uh, he grew up in Brooklyn and with Phil Suling and the, those hardcore New York guys. I think Suling must have known Stranko from, a, you know, for a long time, I think. Because they all were really tight. Stranko knew Grabowski really well. Grabowski was just an old, short, feisty guy, sort of like you'd imagine Jack Kirby to be. Short and feisty and, you know, sort of, he would carry a pipe with him when he'd walk down in his neighborhood when he was a kid, you know, and if in case a gang attacked him, he'd have this pipe to defend himself. And you can just, it sounds like a Jack Kirby story, you know. So anyway, Sister Grabowski's birthday was in Detroit when we were having this show at at the Detroit Triple Fanfare, and Stranko was one of the guests and stuff. And so um, after they shut down the the convention room, somehow they, they we get back into the convention room, which they shouldn't have let us do. And Stranko made up this great sign that said, happy birthday to the Polish prick. And, and we had this surprise birthday party for Chester Grabowski. And it was Suling and Stranko and um, Russ Cochran. And I don't know who else, you know, Barry yeah. Bauman, probably, because he was uh-huh. part of that group. And, you know, a few other guys. But that's the guys I remember. And then afterward, I think they they all went upstairs and were gambling. You know, they playing we were playing poker or blackjack or well, poker. It was always poker. 
Stay tuned next time for part two of the Who Is Bud Plant interview, only here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast.